And as we come to the end of the book of Numbers, we've been following a geographical structure for this book. It has been three camp sections of the book, uh, interspersed with two different travel sections of the book. The first section, they were camped at Mount Sinai. That was from the end of Exodus all the way through Leviticus into the first part of Numbers. Then there was the travel portion from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And every time they traveled, you all know it was trouble. There was always some plague or other that happened because of their rebellion. They were camped at Kadesh Barnea where the children of Israel refused to go into the promised land. And so the Lord condemned them to wander the wilderness until that faithless generation had died out. And that's where we got that second travel portion, which brought us for the last camp section of the book to the plains of Moab, where they conquered the territory of Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings, and took possession of their land. We had the story of Balaam and Balak, and last week we saw how they occupied more of the land of the Midianites and added to the the portion that had already been conquered, which would come to be known as the province of Gilead in the land of Israel. And we have landed right across the river from Jericho. And if you know your Bible, Jericho is where the walls came a-tumbling down. It is the first stop in the promised land. They will cross the river in the book of Joshua. They will march around the walls, and they will conquer that city and devote it to destruction. But right now, they're looking across the river at this fortified city from the other side. They're not in the promised land yet. The new generation is firmly in place. That was one of the biggest pivot points of this book, is the old generation dying off and the new generation taking over. Moses, as well, as part of that older generation and for his own sin, was not permitted to enter the promised land. And his time is almost up. In fact, God has already told Moses, it's time for you to climb up that mountain so that I can take you to heaven to be with me. It's time for you to die. And the only thing that remains for Moses to do is to have his last words with the people. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is, is the last words of Moses. These final chapters here are are more lists. That's what the book, the function of the book has been. More lists, as well as some instructions concerning what to do when they enter the promised land, some of which we've already seen, some of which is new or in greater detail for us. And I think it's appropriate that we are studying these chapters as we come to the end of this year And we're looking on to the next one because that's very much the context of the end of Numbers and the entire book of Deuteronomy. We are seeing the end of one phase of their existence and moving on into another where they began in the promised land and left because of famine and were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've now left Egypt, made the journey, and 40 years later, they're about to enter the promised land. And for us as well, we have transitions that come into our lives from time to time where you've got to look back on where you've been for better or worse, and it's time to move forward. And not only to move forward, because that's going to happen one way or another, it's to make sure that God is with you as you go forward in life. And this is what the Lord is going to instruct them about in this book and the remainder chapters here. So we're going to have some long sections of reading tonight, but I do think it is good for us to read the scripture because we need to at least have heard it once, at least to have read it and make sure that we heard these words, even if they're not going to be your favorite memory verses, they're still very important. And we're going to talk about that. So we're going to start in chapter three, and I'm actually going to read the first 49 verses here. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. So you can hear how we're already concluding this book now. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. 
Passover. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. It's a really interesting sentence that we're going to have to pass by, but it's just cool to think about. Verse 5, so the people of Israel set out from Ramesses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hahirot, which is east of Baal-Zephon. And they camped before Migdol. And they set out from before Hahirot and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. And they set out from Marah and came to Elim. At Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there. You're probably recognizing some of these names now. And they set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. This is not the noun Sin. This is the name Sin. And they set out from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dofka. And they set out from Dofka and camped at Alush. And they set out from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibrot Hata'ava. And they set out from Kibrot Hata'ava and camped at Hazarot. And they set out from Hazarot and camped at Rithma. And they set out from Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. They set out from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna and camped at Rissa. They set out from Rissa and camped at Gehelatha. And they set out from Kehelatha and camped at Mount Shefer. They set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. And they set out from Harada and camped at Machelot. And they set out from Machelot and camped at Tahath. And they set out from Tahath and camped at Terah. They set out from Terah and camped at Mithka. And they set out from Mithka and camped at Hashmana. And they set out from Hashmana and camped at Moserot. They set out from Moserot and camped at Bnei Ya'akan. And they set out from Bnei Ya'akan and camped at Hor Hagidgad. That's a good one. Hor Hagid God. And they set out from Hor Hagid God and camped at Yotpatha. And they set out from Yotpatha and camped at Abrona. They set out from Abrona and camped at Ezion Geber, which is right at the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. And they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. And they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. And they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punon. And they set out from Punon and camped at Obot. And they set out from Obot, and they camped at Iye-Abarim, in the territory of Moab. They set out from Iyim, and camped at Dibon-Gad. And they set out from Dibon-Gad, and camped at Almon-Diblathaim. And they set out from Almon-Diblathaim, and camped in the mountains of Abarim, before Nebo. And they set out from the mountains of Abarim, and camped in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho. They camped by the Jordan, from Bet-Yeshimot, as far as Abel-Shittim, in the plains of Moab." That's a long list of places. And this is the first thing we have in these chapters. These are all of the major campsites that the Israelites had during their 40 years in the wilderness. As we saw in verse 2, written down by Moses. Probably worth underlining that back in verse 2. Moses wrote down. He gives us 42 locations listed here. 
And this is generally accepted, and I would agree with this, that this is a representative number of the places they stopped. That is seven times six. You have six sevens here. And it seems to be the numerical implication is they're now coming to their seventh seven, their Sabbath of seven stops. Meaning it is possible that there were other smaller stops made along the way, but this was recorded in such a way to communicate that numerical symbolism as the genealogies often do, that they are constructed in such a way that the generations have a numerical significance. It's not that any of these were made up, and it's certainly not that it's lying. It's just that the way it was recorded was intended to communicate a spiritual truth on top of the actual truth that this is where they stopped. And that is that the promised land is going to be their Sabbath rest. It's very difficult for us to nail down exactly where most of these campsites would have been. And that only makes sense. There are some that say because we can't find any artifacts of the children of Israel traveling along the way, that it must not have happened. But remember, artifacts come when a civilization settles in one place for a long time. They were moving, and it seems from this list, they were moving rather briskly. They were following the Shekinah glory of the Lord. So if you find a good Bible atlas, they probably can show you where a lot of these places were. Uh, And a lot of them we've already known from our study through Exodus and Leviticus, and also in Numbers. That helps us place these sites, at least generally. We know that when it references the Red Sea here, the Yam Suf, that that is the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, That is the, uh, what would you say, the northeastern kind of antenna of the Red Sea. It's got two gulfs that come up like this, and it's the easternmost one. And we went into detail why we believe that that was where they crossed the Red Sea. This is one of those reasons, because after they've passed through, now they're, you know, They're well past Egypt when it starts mentioning the Red Sea, but I'm not going to get into all of that again. But again, a good atlas will help you nail down all these sites if you like. Only a few of them have specific notes, kind of reminding us of where they were. Mara, remember, was the place where the waters were bitter because that's what the name Mara means. And why have a list like this? You know, if you think that the Bible is just meant to be a book of axioms, you know, kind of like one of those chicken soup for the soul kind of books, this book, this list doesn't seem to have much function. But you've got to remember what this was for. First of all, it reminds us that the story is true. If you're just making up some mythology in order to communicate a cultural heritage, you're not going to do things like this. And we know that because other cultures didn't do things like this. So it reminds us that the story is true. It affirms Mosaic authorship of the book. That's the second thing. Moses couldn't have written this. Well, it says in verse 2, Moses wrote this down, that God was telling him to keep a log. So either the scripture is lying or it's true. And it also served to remind the Hebrews of God's faithfulness. So there's a historical reason. There's a theological reason and an important apologetics one. And then there's a practical or spiritual one that God has been faithful through all of these places. Remembrance is a huge theme in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but even carrying over into things like Passover and the uh, Lord's Supper, right? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And whether we're coming to the new year or any other transition of life, or even if it's not a transition in life. It's good to look back and remember where we've been. We were doing this uh, at the Christmas party not long ago, when we were looking back at where we were, and it's amazing to me that we were still in Exodus chapter 20 at the beginning of this year. 
We made it all the way through Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers, that we were still in Romans chapter 8 on Sunday mornings, and it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. You ever sit back and go, oh, that was this year? That happened this year? That felt like it was 10 years ago. You've got to take the time to, to stop and remember. What sins have you overcome? So many times we, we spend all this time weeping and crying out to God to deliver us from a sin, and then he does, and then we kind of act like, okay, well, glad that's over. You've got to look back and remember what God's delivered you from. What trials have you endured? We go through trials, and I mean, it's, in one sense, it's nice that we get to forget the pain of our trials, but it's also good to remember those things, because it, remembers that, it reminds us that God was faithful in them, and then when we face the next one, we'll remember that God was faithful there too. I'm at the point where when money's tight, I don't worry anymore. Because God has provided for us in the nick of time in so many crazy, miraculous, the faithless person would say serendipitous ways that, you know what? I don't really worry about that any longer. What victories have you had this year? What losses have you had? Where have you fallen short? You've got to remember those too. To say to yourself, I'm not going back there because I remember how miserable that was. So I'm never making that mistake again. Remembering enables you to trust God for the future and commit to do better. So I'll say anytime, you might be listening to this on the radio, listening to it on live stream, anytime you, you can just step back and remember is good. But especially for us in this room now, as we come into the end of the year, this is a good time to remember where you've been, remember what God brought you through so that you never forget. That's the function of a list like this. Verse 50 now, we'll finish up this chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Seems fair. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So God is commanding the children of Israel. You're looking over this, this river. You've got to drive out the Canaanites. We've already talked about this. We will discuss it again. Deuteronomy hammers this point home. Moses is going to tell them, don't let yourself get lazy. Don't let your stomach get squeamish. Don't let your courage fail you. You've got to drive these people out. He says, if you keep them alive, they're going to be as barbs and thorns to the people. Have we not seen that when there is a historical injustice between one group and another, the conflict seems to be never-ending, and it, it ceases to matter who did what to whom. All that is remembered is the last one. I think if you look, for example, at the Balkan history in that neck of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, it's, it's amazing the violence and the tribal nature that people can fall into, and the Lord is like, I don't want that for you. Unfortunately, for as many times as Moses is going to tell them this, and Joshua is going to tell them this, and the prophets are going to remind them of this, they're not going to do this. They will not complete the task. They will not drive out all the Canaanites, and they're going to suffer for it for generations. 
And as I said, we're going to talk about this in more detail later. Uh, This is God's judgment being brought on these people. God is saying, I am raising you up to judge these incredibly wicked nations And you've got to drive them out. And if you don't, he says in verse 56, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So those that want to accuse this of being some sort of ethnic pride, this ethnic religion that our group is on top and yours is not. No, God is warning them, you will also endure this thing if you do the same things that they did. God is telling them what they need to do in order to do better when they come into the next chapter. In Genesis 15, 16, God said, I'm going to give the Amorites 400 years to repent. They hadn't. Here's what you've got to do. He's telling them, if you want to enter into that promised land, you want to take hold of your inheritance, this is what you've got to do. And as we ourselves are looking on to the next year, into the next phase of life, we say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to let this year fumble like this one. Or maybe we did good, but we didn't get where we wanted to get. You know, we want to do better. We want to keep improving, keep growing. Well, how exactly do you plan to do that? It's good and it's necessary to say, I've got to do better, but it is not sufficient. You've got to say how you're going to do better and what you're going to do better. And this is where people can start to be at a loss. Well, I don't know what to do. Lucky for us, God has also told us what we need to do. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 25, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, notice that, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. He's not saying you're never going to have problems, but he's saying if you walk in my ways, when the problems come, you'll be ready to handle it. You'll be built on the rock and it won't cause your whole house to collapse like it did for the man that built his house on the sand. God has given you a book full of instructions over how to take hold of that promised land. And remember, the promised land, it was a real thing, but it's also a symbol used in the Bible of the abundant life. It can be used to represent heaven, but more often it's, this is the life that God intends his people to have. Not liberated from slavery, but wandering in the wilderness, but liberated from slavery unto abundance. And the way you take hold of that is by obeying the Lord's commandments. Humility. If you're not walking in humility... Bible says God opposes the proud. So never mind other people fighting against you. God will will be holding you back if you're not walking in humility. How about love? I, I think you can say a lot of things about America today. We are certainly short on love. As much as we talk about it, we've confused love with sex and forgotten what real love is all about. Love is about choosing the highest good for another person, even for your enemies, Jesus said. Love, diligence. I mean, the the whole book of Proverbs is all about practical, how to hammer the nails level instruction of life. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, Solomon says. That's in your Bible, along with everything else and all the high theology that we find. That you've got to get up on time in the morning. You've got to work hard. You've got to work until the day is done. Otherwise, you shouldn't expect anything from God. That's in your Bible too. Self-control. I just can't say no to myself. You can if you're in Christ Jesus, because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So God intends you, in the next year, I'm going to control myself. I'm going to say no to myself when I want something that's not good. I mean, truth. Don't lie. Stop lying. It seems like we keep having to relearn that lesson. 
All manner of spiritual discipline. And that's just a small sampling and a handful. What of God's commandments are you going to do better in the new year? In this new season of life? Just tomorrow. It can be even tomorrow. What are you going to do better tomorrow? Sometimes it's good to take an inventory of your day and say, you know, I didn't lie, but I had an opportunity to tell the whole truth and I kind of let people believe something else. I have plausible deniability. You can't prove it in court, but God sees my heart. Tomorrow we're telling the truth every time. You can say, well, I'm taking the promised land, but man, if you don't kill the Canaanites, if you don't drive out all of the things that are going to drag you down, you're just kidding yourself. Chapter 34. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. This is important because this is the land that they're going into. God's going to give them the boundaries. Your south side shall be from the wilderness of Zin alongside Edom. Your southern border shall run from the end of the salt sea, that's the Dead Sea, on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim and cross to Zin, and its limit shall be south of Kadesh Barnea. Remember, Kadesh Barnea was the, the entry point. So the border is going to go just below that. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and pass along to Asmon. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt and its limit shall be at the sea. Your translation may say the river of Egypt there, but this is not a reference to the Nile. This is a reference to something called the Wadi al-Arish, which is kind of halfway between Israel and Egypt and was the recognized border of Egypt uh, as I, it might still be to this day, although I'm not certain on that. So that's why the newer translations say the brook of Egypt in order to avoid confusion. And its limit shall be at the sea. For the western border, you shall have the great sea. We'd call that the Mediterranean Sea. And its coast, this shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. This is a different Mount Hor than the one in the south where Aaron died. From Mount Hor, you shall draw a line to Lebo Hamat. And the limit of the border shall be at Zedad. Then the border shall extend to Ziphron. And its limit shall be at Hazar Enan. This shall be your northern border. You shall draw a line for your eastern border from Hazar Enan to Shepham. And the border shall go down from Shepham to Ribla on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach to the shoulder of the Sea of Chinneret on the east. The Sea of Chinneret is the Sea of Galilee. And the border shall go down to the Jordan and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land as defined by its borders all around. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. You say, why not 12? Verse 14. For the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father's houses have received their inheritance and also the half tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. We talked about that last time. Now, this is a, maybe a boring section of scripture, a bunch of place names you don't know about. But let me ask you this question. How relevant is it in 2022 to know the boundaries of the country of Israel? Kind of important, isn't it? God has given it very specifically. And so it matters. And of course, this might not be something you're going to read for your devotions every day. But in context and in its time, it was vitally, crucially important. This is the land I've given to you. Nothing beyond that and nothing less than that. And it gives them very specific markers. The southern border would run alongside Edom, which is the land of Esau. God didn't let them take Esau's land because he had an inheritance from God too. From the Dead Sea below Kadesh Barnea out to, as I mentioned, the Wadi al-Arish, 
The western border was the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. The northern border ran from, as I said, a different Mount Hor, peaking at a place called Lebo Hamat. The eastern border would go around the shoulder of the Sea of Galilee and go down the Jordan River and connect in the south. So this is from the borders of Egypt, encompassing all of Phoenicia, places like Tyre and Sidon, up into Syria, including Gilead on the eastern side of the, the Jordan River. The Promised Land was a big place, much bigger than the little strip of land they're occupying now. Genesis 15, 18, God told Abraham in far less detail, he said, God made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. That is a huge swath of land. In fact, Israel only held this territory for a very short time from the end of David's reign and into Solomon's reign. 1 Kings 4.21 tells us that. But that is the place that God has given to them. And in another time, we will talk about the significance of the fact that God has given them this land as a perpetual, eternal due. And it grows complicated when God had exiled them for a long time, but God had exiled them before and he gave them their land back. The point is, for our purposes today, God had scouted the land for them and promised to divide it among them fairly. Likewise, you're looking into a new season of your life. You're looking into a new year. You're looking back at where you've been. You're deciding what you want to do better. Here's the good news. God has already scouted that land for you. God has already looked ahead, determined what he's going to give to you, and he intends to give it to you. Now, some of these things, I'm not talking about land necessarily here, although God may have a new house or a new building or a new stretch of land for you to own. That might be part of it. But some of these things are obvious. God wants you to have greater devotion to Jesus in the new year than you did in the last year. That's obvious, right? Always to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can say by the end of 2023, you prayed more than you did in 2022. You read more scripture. You spent more time reading solid Christian books and listening to good Bible study. You spent more time fasting and meditating on the scriptures. You evangelized to more people in the new year than you did in the previous year. Of course, greater sanctification. You should sin less next year than you did last year. I mean, that's an obvious one, right? Stop sinning so much. That's a good New Year's resolution for anybody. Stop sinning so much. But there are other things that are unique to your gifts and your calling that God has determined for you. Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite verses, you all know it, says that God has works prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has already scouted out that territory and all it takes is for you to walk in it. He's not going to drive out the giants for you, but he's going to put a sword in your hand and he's going to guarantee you victory. Isn't that awesome? 1 Corinthians 7.17 tells us that each one has a life that has been assigned to him by God. That each one should live the life to which God has called him. Some people get really down on talk of God calling you to something, even though it's all over the Bible. And Paul says that everybody has a calling from God. God has not just told you go out and do whatever you want. God has something for you. And you should not just expect that, well, the misery that I'm living in now, this is just what God wants for me. No, don't accept that. Have big faith for your big God who wants to lead you on to big things. I'm not talking about with dollar signs attached to it necessarily. But you know that there are certain things in your life that might not matter to anybody else. But man, if this could be set right, that'd be huge for me. God sees those things too, and he has them ready for you. 
And that gives you, number one, incredible joy and peace that you've got a God who loves you enough to care about your individual life. But also there's a responsibility that comes upon your shoulders, right? You've got to go in there and drive out the inhabitants, trusting that God has got you and finding where the edges and the boundaries of God's will for your life is. So many people want to talk about God's will for their life, but they don't want to step out and go for it and find out what the totality of it is. And I hope that we will all be chasing that in the new year by the power of God's Holy Spirit and all to the glory of his son, Jesus. Verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Kislon. Of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki, the son of Yogli. So, baby names, pay attention, everybody. Yogli is a good name. Of the people of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod. And of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan. Of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak. Of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan. Of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahihud, the son of Shalomi. Of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. List of chiefs. All of these are new people except for Caleb, Joshua, and Eleazar. Caleb and Joshua, of course, being the only two men of their generation who would be allowed to enter into the promised land because they were the two faithful spies that says, let's go, let's not wait. Of course, first you have Eleazar and Joshua who are at the top. They're going to be taking the place of Aaron and Moses. So even though Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim and Eleazar was of the tribe of Levi, they're not functioning as tribal heads. They are functioning as rulers for the whole nation. And these are unfamiliar names to us. But it is important to pause and realize these names would have been very, very significant to the children of Israel and to their history. These were the men that led the tribes into the promised land to take it for their children. These would be the first tribal leaders to actually rule in the promised land. Their names are very significant. These are more precious to them than maybe the names of our own founding fathers are to us. You know, somebody on the other side of the world that might not matter who John Adams or Alexander Hamilton was, but to us, we're like, no, you don't understand. That, that, that guy means something to us. That's who these people are here. I'm trying to encourage you not just to skip over and breeze over these sections without pausing to meditate on why they were given. All we'll say by way of application here is that, well, God's talking about all the tribes, but he's also got these individuals picked out. God knows your name. God has chosen you for the task ahead. God didn't just choose a blob of people and call it the church. Isaiah 43 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isn't that wonderful? God has called you by name. He cares about you. He doesn't just care about us. He cares about you as an individual with all the little things that concern you and all the little details that nobody else really cares about and all the little interests that matter to you. God is a good father and he loves you like a father should. You know, you've got a little kid. They've got things that they care about. And, you know, 
you might not care as an adult or as dad or mom, but you know what you do? You care because they care. You sit down and you maybe learn the names of some of the characters in that TV show they watch. Maybe learn the rules of that silly game they like to play, or you remember some of the silly inside jokes that they have, because you care about your kids. It's the same with, with God and with you. He loves you. Don't worry about bothering God with your individual problems. He wants you to bring those to him. Those of you who are married, especially early on, don't you, especially you ladies, you're dying for your husband to tell you the little details of his thoughts. What are you thinking about? Where have you been? What's your plans for today? And, you know, guys don't really talk like that, so sometimes we're not quite sure how to handle it. But what are you doing? You're wanting to build that deep relationship. It's the same way with God and with us as our Father. He wants to know the details. Heaven knows who you are and has glorious plans for you in the coming year or the coming season or the coming week. Don't let Satan intimidate you and tell you you're no good. How would you react if somebody walked up to your kid and said, you're no good and your daddy doesn't love you? You wouldn't be too pleased with that person, would you? He's like, Don't what are you listening to him for? Well, he said you didn't love me. Well, he hates you. Why would you listen to him? Listen to me. You know I love you. That's, that's what our relationship with God is like. Next chapter, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. Pause. A cubit is 18 inches approximately. It's the distance from an elbow to the end of your finger. That's about how long a cubit was. It's approximately 18 inches. So multiply it by one and a half and that's, that's how many feet you have. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands, and as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. This is, remember, concerning the Levites who were not going to receive any of the land of the promised land. The Levites were given the special responsibility to care for the sanctuary. They also, a certain clan of them would function as priests, but they were to carry the tabernacle, carry the implements, guard the tabernacle, and later the temple was their main duty. And so for that reason, because they were to be supported in that work by the tithes of the people, they were not given an inheritance in the promised land. Instead, they were given 48 cities. And really, cities, these are more villages. This is a very small piece of land they're getting. These are not like metropolises that they're getting. It says that the pasture land would surround them in a 3,000-foot square. So it's in a square, and each side of that square is going to be 3,000 feet, or 2,000 cubits. And that would extend out, the square would start 1,500 feet, or 1,000 cubits, from the walls of the village. This is really there for their cattle, for their sheep, 
It's not so that they can expand and have a big city. This is just so that they can have somewhere to live, somewhere to take care of their animals, so that they can serve the Lord. Of those 48 cities, six of them would be the cities of refuge. And we're going to talk more about them in just a minute. But they all, this also tells us that the Levites are going to be spread out in the land. Every one of the tribes is going to give, according to their own ability, their own size, depending on the, the population, cities for the Levites. So the Levites would be scattered throughout the land in every region because the Levites also had uh, functions as teachers. They had functions as instructors of the law. I imagine they would have functioned as judges in certain cases. Because remember, the Levites were told by God, I am your inheritance. You don't need an inheritance. You've got me with their responsibility for the sanctuary. Why 48 cities? Best I can figure, we are given four different clans of the Levites, and each one seems to get 12, which is the number of the children of Israel. Uh, so, but it doesn't say that. That's just my best speculation. But let's remember the day when God gave them this privilege. In Exodus 32, 29, this is at the golden calf scene. All the children of Israel are engaged in a pagan, worshipful orgy around a golden idol while Moses had been up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and, and the rest of the law. When they came down, Moses couldn't put a stop to them. They were in such a frenzy. Like in the movie, when Moses comes down, they all, oh, they all freeze and panic. That's not how it went down. They were not stopping for anybody, least of all Moses, who they had kind of got fed up with. So what the Lord did is Moses called out, who's on the Lord's side still? And a bunch of Levites came forward and he said, you need to get out there and put a stop to this. And they violently put a stop to this. They had to kill 3,000 people to put a stop to this pagan worship. And when they did that, according to Exodus 32, 29, Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And because of that, the Levites were given the responsibility for the sanctuary and the priesthood. The original plan was that every tribe would give their firstborn sons and that they would function as the the priestly class, you might say, but the Levites earned this. And this is a wonderful thing because Jacob had pronounced a curse upon the tribes of Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49. Reason being, when their daughter was, or their daughter, his daughter, their sister Dinah, was shamed by the prince of Shechem, and the text is unclear whether this was, they either consensually came together before marriage, or perhaps that he had even raped their sister. They lied to the city and told them, we'll go along with the marriage as long as all the men are circumcised. And when all the men were circumcised and in, in pain, it tells it, Levi and Simeon went into the city and killed everybody in the city. Now, what happened to Dinah was horrible, or at least shameful, depending on how you read that. But what they did was absolutely over the top. They sacked the entire city and destroyed an entire city of families. Not even if you read it for their, their sister's sake, for their own honor's sake. And so J uh, Jacob told them on his deathbed, he says, you guys, I don't know what I'm going to do with you guys. But he says, the Lord is going to scatter you in the land when you finally arrive. But what they did at the golden calf scene was so faithful to the Lord that God reversed that. What do we learn from this passage here for ourselves? When you come into that promised land, when God starts to turn things around, when things start to look up for you, give God his due. God doesn't give you the promised land all for yourself. That's what we tend to think. We can treat God like a meal ticket. Like, well, if I serve God, he promised to bless me, and I really want some blessings, so I better serve God. It's not how it works, friend. 
Maybe early on, God will allow that to continue, but he will be constantly sending you godly men and godly wisdom to rebuke you and bring you back to worshiping God because he is God. This applies to your money. When God begins to provide for you financially, then the Lord deserves some. That's that's well established in scripture. And I might say, by the way, if you can't tithe when you're broke, you definitely ain't tithing when you're rich. You've got to start when you have nothing. Your time belongs to the Lord. So many folks, when they finally receive what they've been praying for, they receive a job, they receive a relationship, whatever it is, now they have no more time for God. God gave them what they were asking for, and they just ran away with it. It's like that book, The Giving Tree. Remember that book? Your service belongs to the Lord. Your energy and your time and your skills, the church needs that. The church needs what you have to offer. Your pride. Sometimes people... They, they have things about themselves they refuse to change, even for God. That's not a good place to be. The Lord will wake you up. Your opinions belong to the Lord. A lot of folks want everything that God has to offer, but don't you dare tell me how to think or what to believe. Man, if you don't want to be told what to believe, you, you got the wrong religion. <laughs> All right? Go be a Buddhist. Go be an atheist. You believe whatever you want. We have a standard of faith to which we hold, and if you go outside of that, then you're outside the faith. Even your hobbies and your life goals need to be offered in submission to the Lord. There need to be, if you want to use this image, cities for the Levites scattered throughout your life. That there are places that belong to God and are dedicated and consecrated for His service. God deserves the best of what you have. So devote part of what God gives you to Him. The first part. A good place to start would be devote the first week of this new year to coming and gathering for congregational prayer here at the church. Verse 9, another long section here, but this is an important one. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan, where Reuben and Gad and Manasseh were living, and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But... If he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. Point being, if you whack somebody with a piece of iron, you didn't do it on accident. (laughs) The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. He's laying down principles for the judges of Israel to review in later days. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But, verse 22, if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. 
and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death, meaning you, he can't pay you off. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. For blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. He had mentioned the cities of refuge before. We've heard about them already, and now we get a full explanation of what they are. This is distinguishing between manslaughter and murder. Somebody who kills with malice of forethought and somebody who kills either by accident or even in the heat of the moment without intending to actually murder somebody. If somebody did commit manslaughter, meaning they killed somebody unintentionally without malice of forethought, it wasn't premeditated, they were allowed to flee to one of six different cities, three in Gilead and three in Canaan, to be safe from, it says, the avenger. This would have been a family member who was tasked with the job of avenging the blood of who had been killed. And here's a very interesting Hebrew note for you. The word for avenger is the word goel, which is the word usually translated redeemer. When it talks in Ruth about the kinsman redeemer, Boaz was able to buy back the property of Naomi when he was able to take Ruth as his wife because he was the redeemer. It's the same word. Just as you had an obligation to protect the land of your family and to protect the family name and the, and the progeny that were to come, you were to protect the life of your family. And you were expected culturally to take the life of the man who had taken the life of someone in your own family. However, if you're in a case where it's between murder and manslaughter, the average angry family member is not going to be concerned with such niceties about whether or not it was done on purpose. If your father has been killed by somebody at work, you're not really interested in his explanations about how it was really an accident. But what God is doing, as he does with many of the laws in the Old Testament, is to slow down the process. So we're going to slow this down, we're going to make sure there is a trial, and we're going to make sure justice is served. So if you had killed somebody, you could flee to a city of refuge, and if you were in the city of refuge, you were not legally permitted to perform your avenging redeemer duties. And if you did, you yourself would be punished for murder. And he gives the rules here, and these seem tedious, but again, this would have been the judge the lawyers looking at this book to determine how to judge a certain case. If you used an obvious weapon, if you hit somebody with a sword, you don't get to say it was an accident. 
Or if you were lying in wait for him, right? Well, I just waited behind the bush until he came around and I hit him on the head with a rock. I didn't mean to kill him. It's like, yeah, you kind of did. Or if it says that they fought in enmity, meaning if these guys had bad blood and everybody knew it and everybody knew that this guy had it out for this guy and he ends up dead, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Now, of course, you had to have at least two witnesses. The Bible is very clear on that. But if it was the case of an accident, you know, that accidents happen during battle, they happen in construction, they happen while hunting, or even if it was in an argument, meaning you, you're talking with somebody and you both get so angry that you start to fight and you accidentally kill the guy, he says, then that would be permissible as well. There's a difference between murder and manslaughter. We still have that law today where that's what the lawyers will debate is should this be treated as murder or manslaughter. If you use a non-lethal weapon, meaning if you hit somebody with something and it was a bad blow and it hit him in the wrong spot and they died, but it wasn't like, again, a sword or a spear or an ax or something like that, then all right, you, you could flee to a city of refuge. And if you were found not guilty by the congregation, this could be part of where we get the idea of a jury from, you could live but you had to remain in the city of refuge. If you killed somebody, it's either death or city of refuge for you. And that's, well, I live over here. My family's there. Well, they can come join you in the city of refuge if you like, because that's what's left for you. Only, though, until the death of the high priest. Now, this was given for, I'm sure, the practical reason of giving people kind of that jubilee, that hope that eventually we will be able to get out from this. And the high priest typically would have been a very old man. He would have been the oldest of the family and oldest of the clan. So it wouldn't have been like decades and decades in most cases. But also there's a theological picture here that there's a life for a life. The high priest carried atonement for the people. And for him dying in that position, it, it, in a way, it covered the sin of all the people. So there's a, there's a picture there. Um, and if the high priest had not died, you leave the city of refuge at your own peril. And if the avenger catches you outside the city of refuge, even if you were found innocent, then that's on you. Killing is a terrible thing. I don't know if I need to convince anybody of that. And God says, I'm not going to have this polluting my land. I'm not going to have you killing each other. Even if somebody accidentally kills somebody, he goes, I want to make sure that there's even a sting there that you weren't careful enough to look out for somebody else's life. And also so that nobody's able to get away with, you know, a, a, an accident that nobody saw. There's even consequences for that too. Justice must be served. God told uh, Noah in Genesis 9, he says, if somebody kills another man, then by man shall his blood be shed. The Bible, as, despite what many people would say, the Bible is very pro-capital punishment when it comes to things like murder. Now, in our society, we tend not to do this. And I think that that is, in many ways, speaks well of us as a culture, that we would rather rehabilitate somebody than see them dead. However, I, I will say that we... I think having got started to become more involved with the prison ministry and things like that, if that's what we're going to do, we need to think through this a little bit more. Because if we're going to keep on locking up people for decades and decades and decades and decades, basically for the rest of their life, not only is that an incredible expense, but it almost raises the question, uh, if we're not going to be executing murderers, which I think is a noble thing to aspire to, what are we going to do? And I don't really have an answer for that, but it is something that I like to draw to your attention to be thinking about and praying about. And I am delighted that I get the chance to go into the prison and share the gospel and speak to people that have even committed murder and see them find faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's a wonderful thing. And as far as the New Testament is concerned, Paul tells us, brothers, never avenge yourselves. Never. The New Testament calls us to the ideal, always. Forgive, even if it was premeditated. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. There's a great Jesus picture here, too. All of us carry the blood guilt of sin. And I love this because even though most of us don't enjoy being sinners, there's some things that we probably enjoy more than others, but every one of us wrestles with the fact that we're not all that we could be. And we know that there's something in us that is dragging us away from who we would like to be. But the good news is our Redeemer, our Goel, our High Priest has already died. He died on the cross for our sins. And now we are set free. We get to leave that city of refuge to live as free brothers and sisters among God's people. 1 Timothy 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. Never forget that it is the blood of Jesus that covered your sin. It's not just about trying to do better. I want you to try to do better. Jesus wants you to do better. The Bible wants you to do better. But ultimately, it is about believing and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is going to save you. Not how good you are and how well you act, but if you have put your faith in our Lord Jesus. And until you have received that forgiveness, dude, forget the promised land. You've got bigger problems. We've got to deal with that first. The final chapter of the book of Numbers now, chapter 36. The heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Hopefully you remember that story. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the Jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Hopefully you followed that. I will explain it in just a minute if it was tough, tough to catch. But Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance and any tribe of the people of Israel shall be a wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father. So that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad, verse 10, did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Makla, Tirzah, Chagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. In the final chapter, we once again meet these five daughters of Zelophehad. 
In chapter 26, they came to Moses and they said, our father only had daughters. So when we get married, what was the case then, as it still is now, the daughter would become part of the family to which she married. Therefore, she would be part of that inheritance. So who's going to receive the inheritance of our father? And the Lord made a law. He said, if a father only has daughters and has no male heir, then the daughter shall be the one to carry on his inheritance and inherit property. And we've talked about this was not some chauvinistic thing. This was when a daughter was married, she was to be part of another family. They were concerned for the name and the heritage and legacy of their own father. Well, we see them again. And the elders are saying, all right, but if that happens, okay, so these daughters are now carrying the inheritance. They go and marry into another tribe. So then that inheritance that they have, of course, is going to pass on to their son. But that son is going to be part of a different tribe. So now you've got pieces of the tribe of Manasseh, or they're saying this could happen to other tribes, not just our own. Then we're going to see that the inheritance is going to be divvied up, and maybe one tribe or one clan will fade away, and another will rise up. And how is that fair? And the Lord agreed. He said, this isn't right. So here's what the Lord said. If a woman ends up in a place where she has the inheritance, where she is in the situation of the five daughters of Zelophehad, he said, according to the law, what she needs to do is marry within her own clan. That way, the inheritance will stay within the tribe, stay within the clan, because God was very keen to make sure that nobody would be forgotten. Nobody would be erased from God's inheritance in the promised land. So that way, in the year of Jubilee, no land was moving between the tribes. It always stayed where God had decided it. Not exactly free market capitalism, but then again, this is a theocracy. Let's not forget. And it says that the five daughters, Makla, Tirza, Hagla, Milka, and Noah, married within their clan, preserving their heritage. I don't want to get off into this again because we've already talked about it, but I love how all of the children of Israel, but especially these five women, set such a wonderful example of caring for the legacy and heritage of their own family. That they're, they're not so selfish that they don't care what happens to the name of dad or what happens to their own children. They want to preserve what has been given to their family, preserve that story, preserve that name. And I think that we all would do a little better to think of our families as units rather than just as a bunch of people squabbling with each other to live their own individual lives. But what a fitting place to end the book of Numbers. Why this story? Because it's reminding us the next step is the promised land and it's reminding us everybody gets their peace and nobody's peace is going to be taken away. And that's true for you too. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have an inheritance that will never be shaken. And if you are not in Christ Jesus, would you like to be? There's an inheritance waiting for you. Romans 8 verses 16 and 17 the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Meaning whatever Christ inherits, you inherit. But he say, whoa. That's pretty special, isn't it? That was a weak whoa, by the way. <laughs> You're an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Why is he adding that bit about suffering? He's saying, don't think that you can just claim it and walk away with it. No, you've got to walk the life. You've got to live the life with Jesus. You've got to come to the end of your life fully faithful to our Lord Jesus. And I love that because Jesus Christ, we know he was the eternally begotten son of God. He was the one and only begotten son of God. But you and I 
are God's adopted sons and daughters. That's what Jesus won for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The Bible says so that he could bring many sons to glory. Therefore, your future is certain and no one is able to take it away from you as long, again, as you are willing to endure to the end and, so to speak, suffer for the promised land. Verse 13, these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And with that, we complete the book of Numbers. And the only thing left for the story of Moses is the book of Deuteronomy, his last words to the children of Israel. Let's take it back just for one second at the end here and remind ourselves of the grand structure of the Pentateuch that we've been following. Because remember, this was put together as a single unit and it can be read as a single unit. The book of Genesis is all about the fall from Eden in the first half. But then in the second half, we focus in on this one family and their story becomes representative of all humanity. They fell out of their promised land and had to go down into the land of Egypt where they were enslaved. But the book of Exodus is the movement away from slavery, through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where they have an encounter with God. Leviticus is the center. That's where atonement is made. That's where the blood sacrifice would be made so that God can dwell with his people. And now that they've got that out of the way, the book of Numbers is about the journey back to the promised land, again, through the wilderness. And Deuteronomy is going to be the inverse of Genesis. While Genesis was all about going out of the promised land, Deuteronomy is all about going into the promised land. In the middle of a long journey through the wilderness, that's life, right? But in the middle of it all, at the center of it all, is that encounter with Almighty Jehovah God. What is Numbers about? The old generation failed. But the new faithful generation is primed to take hold of their inheritance. And for you and me, coming to the end of a year, looking back on where we've been, looking forward to where God wants to take us, we've got to follow the example that we've read in the book of Numbers. You've got a good example and a bad example. Good example is daughters of Zelophehad, Joshua, Eleazar, the new generation. Bad example, as far as the book of Numbers is concerned, Moses, Miriam, Aaron, and the previous wilderness generation. Hebrews 4 brings it to a, a, a fine point for us when it says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, meaning as long as you still have a chance to believe and believe that gospel, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You should fear, have that fearful sense of, I am not going to allow anything to confuse the issue of whether or not I'm saved, man. For good news came to us, just as to them, meaning the wilderness generation, but the message they heard didn't benefit them. They, they fled the promised land. They wouldn't go in. What was the difference, verse 2? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They lacked faith. They didn't believe that God could conquer the giants in that promised land. They thought they knew better. They thought that they understood it better than these religious people telling them to go for it did. And so they missed out on God's rest. And he's saying, the rest of you should have a little bit of trembling in your heart and follow the example of the faithful children, not those that were faithless. Do it God's way and the promise is yours. I guarantee it. Strive in your flesh trying to do it your way and, and you're going to spend the rest of your life in the wilderness. But if you cling to your Redeemer, you will receive your inheritance. In this new year, let's try to do better 
But let's remember that it all comes back to faith in what Christ has done. And let's press on to the finish line in Jesus' name.